We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 111. It's the 30th of August, 2017. With me this week, the return of the 12th man. 12th man, welcome back. Thank you, Trevor. (laughs) And hello, listener. Great to have you back, Paul. It's great to be back. So, um, Paul, um, various topics came up for discussion during the week. And uh, from Q&A and from other just general sources. So let's start with Australia Day because it, it, it... it came up as part of a Q&A episode and it's wrapped up in some Stan Grant stuff that we'll yes. get onto as well. Yeah, so it has been a topic of late, hasn't it, for mm. a lot of people. What do you think is the best date for Australia Day? Got any problems with the 26th of January? Look, you know, I can understand people saying it's the most appropriate day because it was basically the arrival of the, you know, the first group of Europeans to actually, you know, uh, put down... You know, set up their tents and uh, actually start living here on a permanent basis, apart from, of course, our Indigenous Australians. Now, uh, let's face it, if the Europeans had never arrived in Australia, it wouldn't be Australia. It would be something else. Mm. So I can sort of uh, relate to the idea that it was, in a sense, the beginning of the, the, the nation, the modern nation of Australia. On the other hand, I can... Look, I can sympathise with the feelings of Indigenous Australians who feel it was, you know, it was the beginning of some very hard times for them and some great injustices that were perpetrated on them. Um, I don't quite go along with the idea that it was uh, a deliberate genocide on the part of the European settlers. Uh, You know, I get a little bit um, impatient with some of our Indigenous um, brothers and sisters who talk about the ongoing genocide. I think that is really over-the-top yeah, rhetoric. I have a real problem with ongoing genocide. Over-the-top rhetoric. There mm. were definitely uh, cases of, um, of extermination that did mm. take place, and I've read about them. I've, I've even looked... I used to be a high school teacher, as you know, in a former life, Trevor, and mm-hmm. I, I actually used to teach my students uh, about some of the you know, atrocious things that were done to Aborigines. I was very much in favour of young Australians being aware of some of the darker elements of our history. So I'm not a denier of history by any means, but um, uh, ongoing genocide, I think, is a bit over the top. Mm. So I'm flexible. You know, I'm very much open to the idea that uh, we could change the date. Mm. Why not? I'm going to be guilty of something that I read in um, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is uh, that book which I'm going to be reviewing next week with Simon, which um, examines sort of mistakes that we make in our thinking. And one of them was that when faced with a difficult question, you answer an easier question. (laughs) And uh, my solution to the Australia Day thing would be, Once we have a republic, let's just make it that date. The date that we proclaim ourselves as a republic would be 
easy. And that's going to happen in the foreseeable future at some point. And um, my tip for the powers that be or my request is that uh, when we are, you know, changing over to a republic, if we could just do it sometime in the second part of the year because we've got too many public holidays in the first part of the year, so sometime in the second part would be good. So that's, you know, down the track, there's a solution is just um, when we become a republic. And, you know, probably a year or two ago, I was probably less um, sympathetic to the Aboriginal ideal on Australia Day, but I reckon now I've probably come around a bit. So I don't know what to do in the meantime. Um, Part of me also, 12th man, is um, a strong believer that at some point the Aboriginal community has to say, you know what, we're all Australians now and we're all in this together and agreeing to an Australia Day in the interim might be just not a bad idea to say we are Australians because one of the things that came up in that Q&A episode, and again, well, I wasn't going to watch it. I watched bits of it and I think I saw other bits, was um, I'm going to play you a clip, 12th Man. Put your headphones on so you can listen to this and it's kind of relevant to, um, to what I'm talking about in terms of Aboriginal people trying to come together mm-hmm. with us as one Australia. So... Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can just find this here. Okay, let's try this. So I'm a proud Gumbengi woman from Barrabool up north coast of New South Wales. My question is to you, Senator Brandis, bearing in mind your thoughts on the right for people to be bigots, do you feel that the whitewashed history and the privilege of this country should be acknowledged and that my people have the right to be included in the celebration called Australia Day? And that it's more inclusive and meaningful for everyone, including my people, the Indigenous people of Australia. Well, I think everybody is entitled to feel included and everybody is entitled to be judgmental. My people. Yeah, it's a very um, exclusive sort of um, separation, isn't it, between... Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. Mm. And and, uh, look, I watched it and... um, I don't want to seem too blunt or rude, but this woman was not... Um, she clearly had uh, some sort of European mixed, mixed ancestry. ancestry. Yes, and yet that's totally this is, irrelevant to her somehow. This, this is the thing. This is where somebody has made a decision that, yes, I've got white blood in me and I've got black blood in me mm. and I'm abandoning the white blood yeah. and I'm declaring... That I am the black yeah. of the black blood, and you know, there's a there's a there's a form of racism in this. To and be do honest, you know what else? I was reading uh, Kenan Malik's book on race, mm. and he he basically said, look, biologically speaking, scientifically, uh, you know, we're not different races. There's no clear line biologically speaking, between one group and another. Yeah, we have certain external physiological and physical characteristics that people use as markers. But he said uh, the ones that we usually pick out are skin colour and, you know, obvious facial differences. But he said it's usually skin colour and and hair and things like that. He said 
why don't we why don't we classify people according to ear size, you know, or mm. you know the size of their feet or something? We don't do that. We pick out uh, just certain physical differences, mm. but not all physical differences. You know, it's it's a very selective categorization of people based on uh, perceived uh, markers or perceived differences, and and they're based on, he said, historical class differences historical uh, hierarchies in whatever society and and now people are confusing those they're confusing that historical disadvantage that some groups suffered with race you know they're conflating them mm. but actually it's a it's a it's an imaginary i mean thing part of being a civilized society is that we that we pay no attention to racial differences, that, that we don't treat people differently because of race. Martin Luther yeah, King, right? Yeah, but it's gone the other way, where this a woman is an example, where she has claimed a, a, an identity based on race, yeah. at the same time, while dividing up herself, she is then called for inclusiveness. Yeah. Ironically. Ironically. Like, this is after abandoning her, her white ancestry, you know, puts herself and not only in that, a camp. Her, you know, her words, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud, I forget what the particular grouping yes. uh, she used, woman. I'm yes. a proud something woman. Yes. But uh, did she bother, you know, she could have had a genetic um, test with some saliva, send it off. And they would have told her exactly where all her ancestors came from. She could be a proud from. Irish woman. She as, could as be much a proud, a proud Irish, Irish woman. woman. She yes. could be a proud Italian. We don't really know yes. until she you know, has it checked. Yes. And yet she's completely uh, negated all her other ancestry. Yes. It's, it's very selective, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's, it's claiming a victimhood. It is. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a victimhood narrative, and we've yes. seen it so many times, haven't we? Yeah, it would have been so much more impressive just to say, "I've got part black in me, I've got part white in me." Um, what can we all do together, rather yeah. than in, rather than exaggerating our differences, yeah. which is what she's doing, right. and calling for special privileges or rights or distinctions or victimhood because of them, yeah, yeah, to try and work towards equality despite them. That would have been more compelling. So, Wouldn't you think? mm. So on the same sort of uh, topic, 12th Man, Stan Grant came out and basically followed on from what's been happening in uh, America with uh, they've been removing some Confederate statues and stuff and he looked at the Captain Cook statue in Sydney and said, well, the inscription on there, I think it said something along the lines of uh, this man discovered this land. And he said, well, clearly he didn't discover it um, as the first man to discover it because Aboriginal people were here for 60,000 years beforehand. And the, you know, calling, saying, well, maybe the inscription should be changed. But it, it wasn't calling for the statue to be removed. It was thinking... Maybe an additional inscription to say uh, he explored this area, or I, you know, in the past I've had some problems with Stan Grant, but I think he's been pilloried unnecessarily on this one. Mm. I didn't think he was entirely unreasonable 
in that he was just calling for debate as much as anything, which is which is fair enough. So from that side of things, let's have the debate. Oh, clearly, something like a statue like that should stay. Um, and really, the inscription itself is historical in that it says at the time that this inscription was made, that is the view that Australians had. So that's exactly. a historical exactly. thing in itself. You know, why not put another plaque or something with it? You know, by the way, Terra Nullius was um, decided to be incorrect mm. uh, and later court cases. You know, yeah. that wouldn't make sense. So It would. But on the other hand, uh, look, I heard another commentator say, look, um, rather than, you know, every 10 or 20 years when we decide to rewrite history, you know, add another little plaque underneath the whatever plaques are already there, mm. where does it end? She said, why not leave it? As a as as a as an artifact of that particular period in in which it was erected, mm. and put up others, put yeah. up other monuments with their own, um, perhaps more contemporary uh, reading of history mm. on them. Mm. Put up, she said, there are not too many monuments to great women in mm. our history. Why not put up a few statues of of great women? And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, mm. the thing about Captain Cook discovered Australia. Look, I recall uh, when I was a primary school student being taught that sort of thing, you know, that Captain Cook discovered Australia. But, look, I think any halfwit would have known, you know, would have been able to figure it out mm-hmm. that he obviously wasn't the first person here because we also yes. knew there were Aboriginal people here, you yes. know. Yes, he was the first European. He was the well, he was mm. the first European mm. to map the East Coast because mm. I recall very clearly in high school being taught that a Dutchman called Dirk Hartog had landed on the Western Australian coast in, I think, 1616, which is way before 1770. Mm-hmm. And, and the plaque, you know, was later in later years found there. So mm. clearly Cook wasn't the first European on mainland Australia, mm. but... You know, to say he discovered Australia, I mean, anyone could figure out he he didn't actually discover it. Mm. So I think that's a bit of a, a non-event, you know, that, that whole argument. Mm. Because anyone can figure out it's not true yes. without the necessity of putting up a plaque denying it. Yes. Don't you think? True. Yeah, true. I mean, on this issue, I, I don't have super strong feelings on it. Mm. And I am strong that the statue has to remain and mm. the inscription should remain as it is. And, yeah. and if you want to add something in some other form, you know, in terms of another statue or whatever, yeah. I don't care. Really. Otherwise, yeah. we get we get to a situation where we're we're tearing down all the old monuments yes, and putting up new monuments every yeah. 10 or 15 years whenever somebody decides that the old ones are no longer accurate. Yes, if you take that uh, to its logical conclusion, you would go into the into the libraries and start ripping pages out of books that have the exactly. wrong stuff written in exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the danger of that. It's a big danger too. Mm. And it's, it's not as if it's never happened. Yeah. Um, one of the other comments made in that Q&A was by the Aboriginal singer who declared that... Uh, Another proud man. Transgenerational trauma is a real thing. Yeah. And um, and I've previously um, talked about the fact that I don't think that guilt 
is transferred through the generations. And I don't think victimhood is either. I don't think these things are passed down um, transgenerationally, as he suggests. It's just a bit rich, isn't it? Um, I mean, what we've got here, or what we had there, um, 12th Man, was, you know, this singer, this guy, playing a guitar using Western chord progressions, using a sophisticated audio system, playing to a national audience after sitting next to the Attorney General mm. and uh, claiming to speak on behalf of all Aboriginal people. Yeah. And he's... he's I, I got a bit impatient with him because he accused... He accused uh, Brandis of being a representative of the, you know, of the whitewash and um, who had drowned out the Aboriginal voice. And every time Brandis tried to say something, he would shout him down. Yes. He was doing exactly what he claimed to be a victim of. Yes, yes. But anyway, that's a trivial point. He wasn't a considerate debater in in that sense. Um, So... um, so, yeah, I don't accept this transgenerational trauma. No, there is obviously transgenerational mm. poverty, mm. but, yes. you know, that's a different matter, isn't it? And yes. certainly we, we, we certainly should be doing something about poverty in whatever community it exists. Mm. At, at the risk of, of transgressing uh, Godwin's law... Uh, you know, he who mentions the Nazis first, you know, loses the argument, I think. Oh. Um, you know... I don't think that the Jewish population thinks as poorly about Germans as the Aboriginal or members of the Aboriginal population seem to think about the current Australian generation. Like, the leaders of the Jewish community don't berate the current German population anywhere near like the leaders of the Aboriginal population berate the current uh, white community. Yeah, look, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because in the the post-war German German society, apparently they went to considerable lengths to to educate the young people about yeah. what had actually happened with yeah. all the horrors, yeah. uh, in order that they not be led down the same path. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there seems to be this. Um, Part of the part of the effect of that appears to be excessive white guilt, if I can put it that way. You know this um, this idea, which is strong, it would appear to me in a lot of leftist propaganda, that uh, white culture is inherently a flawed and oppressive culture. Mm. Uh, and as you say, this Aboriginal man was playing a Western, you know, European guitar, a European instrument. He's, with... he's enjoying enormous benefits of of what the West had brought. Yeah. Yet failed to acknowledge any of that in a constant whinge about a what's constant been... whinge. And not oh. only that, but he wouldn't actually physically exist if the <laughs> Europeans had never arrived, because it was obvious that he was not purely of Aboriginal ancestry. Yeah. He yes. and all the other Aboriginal leaders of mixed heritage just would never have existed and would never have had the the lives that they have now with all its richness. Uh, and, and, you know, we all have a mixture of good things and bad things in our lives, mm. but, you know, they're alive and, for goodness sake, it's, it's not the worst time in history to be alive, is it, yes. in terms of people in our country? Yes. Uh, regardless of the inequalities and you know the poverty that does exist for some people it's still a relatively prosperous free and not a bad place to live yep 
that they'd win the you know they they'd have a more compelling argument if if leaders of the Aboriginal community made some concessions to the fact that well hey there are some advantages as well as disadvantages. You'd, you'd, Wouldn't you, you think you, it would help your argument? But if you were just going to constantly whinge about uh, the bad things done to your well, one group of your ancestors mm. by another group of your ancestors, um, yeah, you, you start to lose credibility. So that's, I think, what's happened here when people yeah. will switch off. That's the danger if you're not being um, yeah. genuine. And don't you it. get the feeling a lot of um, uh, Australians do switch off? Mm. They get tired of the, the, the guilt trip that's foisted upon them. Mm. Mm. For for something that they're not personally responsible for. Yep. Yeah, their ancestors, some of them, a few of them, yes. probably did shocking things. Yes. But all our ancestors didn't do those things. Yes. Most of our ancestors were just ordinary people, you know, mm. going about their daily lives in whatever circumstances. Mm. You know, it might have been my imagination, but just the bits I did watch of that Q&A... The uh, Aboriginal singer was attacking Jackie Lambie early on, quite heavily. But then during the course of it, she actually came out and said that she had an Aboriginal background. I've heard and started her say that before. Referring to you know herself as Aboriginal, and I, you know, it seemed to me that he backed off and started agreeing with her on different things. And it just seemed more than a coincidence that the two coincided. Yeah, look, you know, I sometimes wonder whether that's just a convenient story for Jackie. And, and, and it may well be genuine. But no doubt it's true. But no it. I would say looking at her, she has a lot more European ancestry than Indigenous ancestry. Um, but at least, you know, to give her credit, mm. I think she is more in favour of just fighting for people's welfare regardless of their background. Mm. I'm not a big fan of Jackie Lambie, but, mm. you know, she's not completely without merit. Mm. Finally, last uh, sort of race issue, 12th man. Um, apparently, uh, racist place names from Queensland's colonial past will finally be wiped from the map. Did Such you hear this? Townsville? Townsville. Was that a... Well, the man after whom, whom it's named was a um, a blackbirder. Really? Mm, apparently. Right. His name was Towns. Towns. Right. Okay. Was it Robert Towns, I think? Okay. Anyway, yeah, he used to bring um, people from the southwestern Pacific, the Melanesian people, right. to work in the sugarcane fields. Right, and, um, right. No, this is more obvious um, racist names. So... Um, uh, just reading from this article, many would be surprised that appallingly racist names such as Nigger Creek still existed yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, in May, following community concern about a place name Nigger's Bounce in North Queensland, the Natural Resources and Mines Department removed references to the name from its databases. Yeah. Fairfax Media can reveal the department then commenced a proactive review of the place names database and found nine other place names that had similarly offensive terms and they uh, on August 14th so just a couple of weeks ago the department discontinued those place names which were Mount Nigger Nigger Head and seven instances of Nigger Creek wow yeah so 12th man I think that is a good idea 
and I'll tell you why. I think the difference here... Well, actually, let's go back to the statues momentarily. If there had been a Rolf Harris statue outside of the Sydney Opera House, I reckon we were entitled to say, that's got to go. And that can go into some sort of rogues gallery of statues in a, in a, in a park where we say, look at the mistakes that we've made and, and don't honour these people, but just you know, look at it from the point of view of mistakes. And I think the reason is that he, during his lifetime, did something that was unacceptable Mm. according to the morals and standards of his day. Yeah. Sometimes with some of these historical figures, you know, some of the early American presidents who had slaves, for example, Mm. uh, unacceptable today, but, you know, back in those days, not unheard of. Whereas he's he's a contemporary. So where you've completely crossed the line of your times, I think in that situation we could say um, your statue's going, mate. Yeah. Um, I think it's already happened. I think there was something in Perth. Yeah, there might have been something like a hall or something named after him. Or or maybe something in the footpath, you know, like the Hollywood Walk of Fame or whatever it is. But it was something along those lines, I believe, in Perth, and they removed it. Okay. So now back to um, places like uh, Mountain Nigger, Nigger Head, Mm. Nigger Creek. Mm. I think that's a good idea as well because you can't avoid that if you, in certain circumstances, like... If you're the TV weatherman and you're saying, you know, uh, heavy rainfalls in Townsville, Mount Isa and Mount Nigger, I mean, you're, you're forced to... If, if you're going yeah. to... In certain circumstances, you need to refer to places and if that's the name, that's the name you're stuck with. I think that's a good reason why they should be changed. Yeah, I'm not convinced, I have to say. Really? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, A lot of people might be surprised by that. Yeah, yeah I, had a, I had lunch with a couple of friends a few years ago and um, one of them was American. And uh, I, I mentioned my bemusement at how Americans react to the word nigger. And just me mouthing the word, just me saying the word, she was like <gasps> aghast. Yes. And my Australian friend, who was also there, was aghast. She tends to be a bit of a politically correct type of person. But, you know, but, uh, you know our, our sensitivity to certain words changes over time. And, you know, I can, I can, you know, fuck is a good example where you hear it all the time now. When I was a kid, I couldn't have imagined saying that word in a schoolyard. And now you go into schoolyards, you hear it all around you. And I even witnessed a young girl of about 12 or 13 uh, tell the school principal to get fucked, you know? Yes. And so our appreciation and our sensitivity of, to particular words changes. And my feeling is rather than react as if the word nigger has any particular magical evil power in it, that we just... Um, well, it does have a meaning, though. A, give, well, every word has a meaning. Uh, well, it's a nasty meaning. It's it a is. nasty meaning, I agree. But uh, I think over time we'll put it into some it, sort it, of historical it, perspective. It, it, it was a meaning that put black people down because I, they were black. I understand that, but um, what about Pretty, bastard? That used yeah. to be an extremely rude word. Yes. And now it's just totally limp, isn't it? Yes. 
Um, okay, so let's imagine there's a place called Mount Bastard or Bastard's Creek. Yeah, which the, and there may <laughs> well be. It may well be. Um, Nobody reacts to it anymore. Yes. Uh, well, it's no longer considered offensive, but nigger would still be considered a very offensive, well, we don't nasty know. word. We don't know. Fifty, hundred years from now, it might be completely irrelevant. We mm. might be so... It um, might be worse. ...racially mixed mm. that everybody just laughs at it, you know? Yes. Okay. It's possible. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I, I just really have a problem with people attaching power to words mm. that they don't deserve. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the, the more constructive approach is to uh, take the power away from the words, from mm. the language. Mm. Mm. I don't know. That's just my thought. Okay. I'm gonna, uh, I'll, I'll think about that in the meantime and see if I can come up with a compelling reason why it should... Well, dear listener, if you're sitting back there and thinking, but Iron Fist, why aren't you saying this or saying that? Well, leave a comment in the post and, yeah. and give us your argument give us your as, comments. To, as to why the 12th man should change his mind on that yeah. one. but. Good on you, Toth Man, for an alternative point of view. Um, Pauline Hanson, we discussed last week about her... uh, Well, you didn't. I did it with uh, the Velvet Glove um, appearing in Parliament. Mm. And I thought quite ironic that that George Brandis, who was all for free speech, said, you can't say that. And um, the left has said, you know, all women can wear whatever they want to, except she couldn't wear that. So, anyway... Uh, Essential Report, uh, they polled a 1,000 Australians. They said, last week, Pauline Hanson wore a burqa into Parliament to draw attention to her view that wearing burqas should be banned in Australia. Do you approve or disapprove of her actions in wearing the burqa into Parliament? What do you think the Australian public said? Approve or disapprove? I I, I don't know. I haven't seen the the numbers. Mm. I, I would guess quite a lot of people... Um, approved that, of Pauline's stunt. Didn't so you they? think the majority would have approved? Uh, I think at least forty percent, probably. Twelfth man, you're good. Thirty-nine percent approved and thirty-eight percent disapproved. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? So pretty even, just in favour of. Um, uh, yeah. So five percent didn't know, and two percent didn't know about it. Mm. It was interesting. That's Pauline Hanson. Did um, you see the article related to that uh, where a, um, a Muslim female academic from Switzerland, she's actually uh, from Yemen, okay? So right. she has a background, Islamic background from Yemen. She migrated or moved somehow to Switzerland. I don't know too much about her personal life. Did you read the article? And she... Uh, I, re- I heard her, I think, on the Religion and Ethics Report. Oh, right, yes, that's right. It was interesting, wasn't it? Dear listener, uh, if you've never listened to the Religion and Ethics Report, then the most recent one is an outstanding episode. It's mm. got three really interesting articles in it. One is that lady talking about the burqa, mm. and from uh, the other was about... Um, a Catholic lawyer talking about the confession, and the third one was an article by a guy who had a very rough upbringing in South Australia and uh, his thoughts on identity politics, if you like. And 
uh, yeah, if you've never listened to the Religion, Religion and Ethics Report podcast, that is the episode to listen to. Um, and we'll talk about some of that stuff later. But um, uh, so, yeah, 40% each one. Well, way. she was, that uh, academic was unequivocal that uh, the burqa is absolutely not something women would choose to wear voluntarily. Yes, unless they were given, brainwashed. Given the choice, unless saying. they're brainwashed. But, it, yeah, she said it's absolutely, and she, she even said it's not even uh, mandated in Islam, strictly speaking. She said it's a, it originates somewhere in some of the more backward parts of Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Mm. Mm. As a you know, it was part of the the tribal culture, uh, where women were shielded from other men, you know, from non uh, intimate men, if you like, mm. uh, because the women were property of the men, mm. uh, pure and simple. Mm. Mm. So she was adamant that the burqa is definitely definitely not a um, a mark of women's liberation, if you want to put it that way. Mm. 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 Um. Twelfth man, put your headphones back on. I'm going to play another tape here for you. Um, this one from um, right wing Tony's favourite, um, well, uh, public servant, Gillian Triggs. Here we go. Should Sharia divorce courts be allowed in Australia? Um, I think that uh, that that becomes, if it's a matter of private law within the Muslim community. Uh, and they want to manage their affairs in that way, and they believe in those those rules. That that's uh, that's reasonably acceptable. But at the same time, uh, if they want to go to the the civil law courts uh, and to have the system determined according to Australian law, uh, then they would be obviously uh, entitled to do that as well. So, so a group of people can have whatever law they want to, provided they agree to it's it. It's in the Australian it? system. If you, as a small group, decide you want a particular set of laws, it's your choice. You can choose which law you're going to go to. And we're talking about a system that's got some inherently bad things in there for women. Oh, my this, God. This is from a human, a former human rights commissioner. I know. And a well-educated woman. Yes. What was her background? Was it in the law? I don't know. But, I mean, charged with protecting human rights. Unbelievable. Totally irresponsible. Totally... Out of place, isn't it? I yes. mean, we, we, we live in a society where we elect representatives to make our laws for all of us. That's right. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we're going to abide by. Yes. And yet here is she saying that a, a minority, a religious minority, yes. can, if they prefer, choose to follow a different set of laws. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Yes. Yes. I think there's a job for her in the Catholic Church coming up, you know, fighting for, for you know, against no doubt the many proposals that the Royal Commission is going to come out with. I mean, she, she'd be ideally suited yeah. for it. I wonder if she were asked, do you think Catholic priests should be, able, should be allowed to uh, ignore, you know, common law in their dealings inside the church, i.e. with children? Well, based on her... Um, thought processes, you know, if they all agree to it, then why not? You know, it's just, you know, 
If it's a matter of private law within the Muslim community and they want to manage their affairs in that way and they believe in those rules, that's reasonably acceptable. And they believe in them. That was an interesting choice of words on her part, wasn't it? She mm. said if they believe in that, yeah. that's all you need, to believe in it. It's... I wonder yeah, if we... Polygamy is if... okay, child brides are okay, if everyone yeah. believes in it. If you believe in it. Yeah. yeah. yeah Anything good. goes if you believe in it. Why would we as a society try and protect people? And why they... would we uh, punish anyone for breaking our laws if they chose to believe something different? Quite extreme. <laughs> it really is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, I agree. It, it, it is. Uh, prayers in Parliament, 12th man. Um... Dear listener, are you aware of the prayer that's actually said in Parliament? I mean, we talk about prayers in Parliament, but what is the actual prayer? Well, sit back. You know, this is what the President of the Senate, by, by virtue of standing orders, so these are the, the standing orders being the, the rules that are applicable as to how business is conducted, must say this prayer, the President of the Senate. <clears throat> I'm going to struggle with this, tough man. Are you well, going to say the prayer for us? I am. It's, it's bringing back memories, actually. Ooh. Yeah, Dad. Yeah. Almighty God, we humbly beseech thee to vouchsafe thy special blessing upon this Parliament, and that thou wouldst be pleased to direct and prosper the work of thy servants to the advancement of thy glory and to the true welfare of the people of Australia. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right. Be Jesus. No, I don't say praise be Jesus at the end. That's just my little... It's, it's you, full on, you, isn't You became it? quite emotional, Trevor. I, I did. Mm. You know. Goodness me. Uh, there's also an acknowledgement afterwards uh, to the local Aboriginal tribe. Uh, so, in fact, the, 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 the first loyalty of our elected representatives is not to the people of Australia, it's to the Lord above. Isn't it? it it's a full-on prayer, isn't it? There's, there's no half measures in that. Because he said, your servants. We, yeah. He was saying, we are your, your servants, your, you being... The Lord, mm. this imaginary being that lives somewhere we don't, we know not where, and uh, he, he's the boss apparently. Would you like to see an end to it, Twelfth Man? Um, I think you already know my thoughts on that, Trevor. I think yeah. it's uh, it belongs in uh, a century that's uh, way way be behind us. Well, uh, article that I've linked to says that there is a strong. Uh, argument that that standing order is unconstitutional. So, dear listener, we've mentioned it before, section 116 of our Constitution. The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification, blah, blah, blah. So... The Commonwealth shall not make any law imposing any religious observance. The argument is that standing orders are a law and the prayer that's in there, forcing the President of the Senate to say those words, 
is imposing a religious observance. Pretty good argument. Sure so, looks like it. Didn't the Greens try to have prayer um, oh, they might banished? Have, they might have tried to run a vote and not get it up or something. Yeah, they wouldn't have got it up because mm. they, they wouldn't have had the numbers. But mm. I think the, the Greens have been uh, had, a, had a policy on eliminating the prayer for a while. Now. I think they do, yeah. yeah. Yep, I think they do. Uh, so, dear listener, if you're interested in that argument, you could uh, look at this article from the, con- from the conversation. And the author is Luke Beck, who's a senior lecturer in constitutional law at Western Sydney University. And um, so he says, yes, that's you know, a compelling argument to say that the standing orders is imposing uh, religious observance. And he's also saying that um, potentially... Um, it's also imposing a religious test for holding a federal public office. Um, the standing orders make it the job of the president and the speaker to participate in religious activities. A person has to be willing to participate in particular religious activities if they want to take on either role. This looks rather like a religious test for a federal public office. So he's saying that um, somebody could go to the High Court... Obviously, a speaker or president could, a member of parliament could, perhaps even just a member of the public. Um, An ordinary member of the public might also be able to bring a challenge. Courts in Canada and the US accept that official prayers held by legislative bodies affect members of the public who come to sit in the public gallery. Canadian courts even accept that official prayers may deter people from running for public office. All good points. So um, if you've got a lazy uh, 100 grand in your pocket and you'd like to run a court case in the High Court and get rid of prayers prayers in Parliament, uh, you would earn our eternal, I was going to say blessing, but uh, um, respect even better. Mm. (laughs) Well earned it would be. We've got to be careful here, twelfth man. We're going to talk about Clive Palmer. He's notoriously he's, litigious. Yes. Don't say anything defamatory. Okay. I won't mention his name. Okay. Good. Uh, the embattled. This is from Courier Mail. The embattled former federal politician is defending a bid by the taxpayer-funded liquidators of his company, Queensland Nickel, to freeze his assets. So they're trying to get his money. In an affidavit filed yesterday, Mr Palmer hit out at allegations he would put his assets beyond reach of the liquidators and pointed to his strong community ties and Catholicism. Seriously? (laughs) At 63 years of age, my history and actions demonstrate that I have no intention of leaving the state, he said. Uh, He said in his affidavit he was a committed Catholic who sponsored... um, Guy Sebastian's theme song for World Youth Day in 2008 when he met the Pope. That makes him a committed Catholic. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Clive, in his reference uh, to paint the picture that he's a pretty good guy and uh, his assets should not be frozen, thinks that um, putting forth his Catholic pedigree is a good idea. I don't know, Clive. But I that's... had no idea he had any religious affiliation whatsoever. Did you? I had no idea till now. I've never heard him mention it before. No. Um, 
But he's trotting it out now. And um, good luck with that argument, Clive. Yeah, very good luck. Good luck. Mm. Um, I've got a link to an article which I won't go into too much, but you know how we're forever reading, you know, scientists now say that having four cups of coffee is actually good for you. But then next week, you know, you'll read having three cups of coffee is bad for you. Yep. and. You know, it's good to drink wine every day, and then it's bad to drink wine. It's you know, it's these studies always contradicting themselves. It seems, doesn't it? And yet we are we have uh, unshakable faith in the scientific method, right? Yes. Well, dear listener, in this article that I've linked to, it it says that um, uh, Basically, that there's been a, a standard that's been used by researchers, in, which is a probability value, a, a p-value. And um, basically, if they get a p-value of less than 0 0.05, that's been considered statistically strong enough that the findings are worthwhile. But these statisticians have looked at it and said, really, that's way too easy and you need to raise the bar in terms of degree of difficulty and replace it with a p-value threshold of 0 0.005. And it would seem, 12 million, that a lot of studies done over the years potentially have used this fairly shaky p-value of 0 0.05, which statistically means that a lot of potentially rubbish studies get through um, when they shouldn't have. So, uh, yeah. so that could be an explanation, dear listener, as to why sometimes coffee, wine, mm. you know, or any manner of things are on one day good and the next day not so good. Yeah. Twelfth Man, have you ever gone onto the iTunes uh, and left a positive review for the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast? I tried once and I couldn't. <laughs> Navigate my way into the into the website. So it is. It's it's easy if you. Yeah. Well, there are instructions, dear listener, on the website. I tried once, and I, I don't know. It just bamboozled me, so I gave yeah. up. Didn't okay. try again. Particularly if you've got an iPhone, it's easy. Oh. You can just go on the podcast app on your iPhone. Okay. So, um, got a new review. This one by. Kenna161975, titled, Only Just Found This Podcast. Really great to see some honest conversation that doesn't seem concerned with making the truth more palatable for the fair of heart. I think we really need a lot more of this. Good on you. Thanks good for comment. that one, Kenna. The whole Aboriginal topic was a good example of that. That's a, that's uh, a tricky that's one. That's what we're all about, isn't it? Mm. It's saying it as we read it rather than as we think we should be presenting it. Mm. Special thanks to our patrons, Ayami, Sean, Alex, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig, Janelle, Al, Ken, John A and Roberta. Thank you very much, guys. Um, oh, actually, um, I will play something. Uh, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index... Paul, got any opinions on my secular index? You're aware what it oh, is? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of what it is. Yes. I haven't, I haven't seen any um, updates on it. Right. Well, there are some there. But um, here's a message from uh, Matt, who is one of our patrons. Uh, well, actually, not a patron, but he's one of our uh, good, strong followers. Greetings, Mr. Fist and Mr. Glove. This is Matt from Perth. 
Firstly, keep up the good work. Podcast is insightful, thought-provoking, funny, and just outright disturbing at sometimes when you're discussing the things that these nutters get up to. Anyway, I've got a few things I've been thinking about to tie in with what you've been discussing. We'll start off with your register. Excellent idea. I think religious affiliation is more likely to influence a politician's vote on issues than anything else. I know that the Australian Parliament currently does have a register of members' interests, but the whole thing seems to be predicated on the basis that you can only have a conflict of interest if you're going to make money out of it. Um, that's a kind of quite telling thing, I believe. Anyway, the sort of things that are on that interest uh, register are shareholdings, trusts, real estate, liabilities, bonds, savings accounts, sponsored travel, etc. But it also does include membership of any organisation where a conflict of interest with a member's public duties could foreseeably arise or be seen to arise. I think if you're Catholic or Jewish or Muslim or Sikh or Hindu or whatever, that is going to have some sort of bearing on how you vote and to me is a conflict of interest. So once you've got your register all sorted out, if they're not going to do it themselves, I think it should be inserted into that register of uh, interests because of that particular part. Anyway, um, great idea. Cheers. He makes a very good point. Mm. Uh, it is. It's so highly influential. Uh, the Velvet Glove had a problem with it when it was just called a religious affiliation register. Mm. But as soon as I just changed it to a secular index, he was okay with it then. Um, See, words have um, words have power. They do. Yeah, the power that we give them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so different people are contributing, uh, guys. Uh, don't wait and then send me ten all at once. It's okay to trickle them through, so I can just add them. You know. In my own good time, there's a guy, somebody called Pele, sent through some information about Malcolm Roberts. He is the One Nation senator. Yeah. Um, he's in a bit of strife at the moment. Yes, he's one of the ones whose uh, citizenship is under uh, question. Mm-hmm. And um, so, for example, with him, it was hard to see uh, what religion he was, at, if, if any. Um, all we could get on him was he didn't seem to have any strong religious or secular convictions, but he would probably curry favour with the Christian lobby if it would further his other crazy hobby horses, such as uh, global warming, etc. So um, uh, he was on a website uh, called Church and State, which is a website that tries to look at things from a biblical world view, and he was spruiking his climate change theory on that page. So um, so anyway, with somebody like that, where there's not a lot to go on, we've put that down. The fact that he's prepared to go on church and state and um, spruik his stuff to them makes me think he's in the questionable category. So I've given him uh, a four on a scale of one to ten uh, or zero to ten. With um, So he's he's on the fall on the bad side of neutral there. So, um, so anyway, dear listeners... Um, keep them coming through and we will eventually get some numbers and then we'll be able to um, do some statistics on different parties and areas and see which are more secular or not. So that was that one. Where would Shanghai Sam uh, fall on that who's, scale? Who's Shanghai Sam? Sam Dustieri, who claims to be a non-practising Muslim. Yeah. Uh, and yet... I suspect he's 
very sympathetic to a free reign for Islam. I suspect he has all kinds of sympathies for yes. minority, um, you know, freedom of religion, of course, we're, we're all in favour of that, but um, I, th- I get the feeling he's possibly a little bit in favour of identity politics, that kind of thing. What do you think? Not sure. That'll be up for somebody to investigate. Mm. Sam Dastiari, Sam Dastiari, anyone out there? Yeah. Can I do probably it? shouldn't have called him Shanghai Sam. That sounds a bit defamatory, right. doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know. You might. What's, get what's it, it normally mean, Shanghai? Well, so. it was with regard to him accepting money from a Chinese business. Oh, right. <laughs> to pay some travel expenses. Right. Um, okay, you sent me an article, 12th Man, uh, the evolutionary roots of identity politics. You've got your own copy there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found you, it you, very you, interesting. You like this one. What are the ideas that you liked? What are the ideas I liked? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he makes the point that he, uh, there's, there, there could be something evolutionary in the way that we um, attach ourselves to, a, to a, an identity group, whether it's a, an, an ethnic group, a religious group. Or whatever kind of group, and he and he makes the point that even when uh, confronted with uh, ide- you know with information that refutes some kind of belief that's firmly held in the group, he said people feel threatened by those ideas, even by ideas being threatened. He said it, you don't have to threaten people with physical violence; just threatening to violate the ideas that are at the core of their, uh, of their identity is enough to provoke some people into retaliatory violence. And it's because that uh, being able to form groups and group loyalties was essential to survival That's right, yes. in our primitive beginnings, yes. that if you were cast out of the group, you were a goner, and group solidarity was such an important thing that you had to be loyal to the group That's right. and defend the group against outside interests. And so we are hardwired to an extent that once we've identified with the group, yeah. we will be antag- antagonistic to the other. So yeah. tribalism is going to be a very hard nut to crack, isn't it, mm. in terms of the way it divides people? Yeah, but let's just make our tribes bigger. So rather than being... A, a tribe of, of poor Aborigines, let's just be a tribe of poor Australians. Or just be a tribe of Australians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but if you're going to work for, you know, say you've got a problem with inequality or poverty, yeah. then don't restrict yourself to a little subgroup. Go for everybody in that is suffering from that malady. Do you remember the old pop song, Trevor? I think you probably would from... It must have been the early 1970s, the Melting Pot. Do you remember that song? No. And it was a song about all the different ethnic groups and, you know, so-called races yes. intermingling to the point where we were all just coffee-coloured people. Right. And, you know, at the time I can remember thinking, yeah, that's not a bad idea because then, you know, people wouldn't be seeing each other as other. Mm. And there would be less strife, less conflict, and we would all be more or less the same. I mean, 
that may well be the future of humanity anyway. We don't mm. really know. But, I mean, certainly there's a lot more what we call international marriage happening than in previous centuries, isn't there? Mm. Hmm. There might well be. But, unfortunately, there's far more open identification with ethnic groups and, and, a, and a desire to to grab hold of an ethnic yeah. grievance yeah. and run it as hard as you can. Yeah. So while we might be more mixed than we were yeah. racially, people are choosing a particular ethnic side and running hard with it yeah. because uh, that's the way that arguments are run these days, yeah. is a victimology. That's right. He, he mentions that, doesn't it? He says, uh, what does he say? Uh, one can easily see why so many individuals from other, otherwise disparate groups are going around practically looking for insults yes. to their group because it's part of this uh, victim uh, narrative, isn't it? Yes. That, uh, you know, it's used to justify whatever means they use to promote the interests of their particular group is that they're being victimised. Mm. that their, their group their, and their identity is under threat. Mm. He said, uh, looking out for the little guy has, for the most part, come to be construed as a virtue. Yeah. However, virtue crosses over into vice when an increasingly large number of groups believe it is not other groups but they themselves who are the true little guys deserving of special treatment. Yeah, and I think that's part of the, the current um, white guilt trip that's being promoted you know, uh, all around the world in predominantly white communities where they're, they're acting as if there's something inherently evil about uh, European cultures of, of various kinds. Mm. And, and also, the, you know, there's this idea that so-called white culture is, um, uh, is, is just one culture anyway, whereas, as we know, Europe was an extremely diverse culture. Mm. Even France, historically, wasn't one country. You know, it was many little countries mm. with different languages. I've even asked French-speaking people, you know, what they learnt about this in history, and they said, yeah, yeah. The French oh. that they speak now was the French language of the Paris area, basically. Yes, prior to the French Revolution, um, most of France did not speak French. Mm. And there's no way they could communicate with a modern Frenchman. And yes, um, yeah. so this idea that groups. there's this one white culture is mm. completely without any basis. Yeah, well, whites don't have culture. No, about. well, that's the other part of it, isn't it? <laughs> they, they don't actually have. It's only non-white, so-called non-white people who have any culture at all. <laughs> one other interesting point from this article was. Um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, says a delusion is a belief with no evidence to support it. However, the psychiatric community is careful and have added a cultural religious exemption clause to this. Essentially, if you believe that Elvis Presley rode to heaven on a winged ass, you are delusional. But if you believe Muhammad did, then you are healthy. Yeah, I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. All true. Yes. Well, you know, mm. it's a it's a very politically correct exemption, isn't it? Really. Yeah. And I, you know, I suspect if you had a private conversation with a lot of psychiatrists or psychologists who've studied it all, they they would probably say any a lot of these religious ideas are quite delusional, but they just can't publish it. 
Mm. Um, let me see here. Uh, Greg Craven is Vice Chancellor of the Australian Catholic University. He's a member of the Truth, Justice and Healing Council and advised Catholic bishops on its establishment. And he was also on um, that episode of the Religion and Ethics Report. And I'm going to play you a bit of a grab from what he had to say on that. On cases of sexual abuse they hear about in confession... But stepping back, Greg, mandatory reporting looks to most people both common sense and morally correct, doesn't it? Well, I think that's the position that's tried to be put forward. But I think what you've got to think about this is you've got to not simply look at it from one point of view and you've got to look at it from the point of view of fundamental religious freedom. Now, the fact is that you can't be a Catholic priest unless you are bound by the seal of a confessional, otherwise you're automatically excommunicated. You cannot be a Catholic in full communion unless you go to a confessional ministered by a priest bound by the seal of confession. It effectively makes it impossible to be a fully practising Catholic. Now, that's big. That is, in fact, the biggest attack, if it were implemented, on the freedom of religion in the history of this country. Now, the thing that I've been thinking about is what would the equivalent be in another context? So let me hit you with this one. What would happen if you had a royal commission into God knows what that said, we've had a little bit of a look at the Holy Quran, mm. uh, and we think that there are certain texts in that that encourage jihad. And that's a really bad thing because people get killed with that. So we're going to make a law that prohibits the printing or reading of those verses in the Quran in Australia. Now, you would rightly tell me this was an atrocious breach of civil liberties. Why doesn't the same type of critique apply here? Actually, I don't think it would be an atrocious breach. <laughs> no, it might save a few lives. Um, he is a very, very senior lawyer. He's run a number of commissions, and uh, yes, he's he's an extremely well respected lawyer. Just goes to show you can you can have all the training in the world, but still come up with numbskull ideas like this fundamental religious freedom that he's missing the point that at some point, if a religion conducts itself in such a manner that it is dangerous to society, then society can say to the religion, sorry, you're not going to do that anymore. Mm. And your, you know, your so-called religious freedom, uh, they're just ideas, and some of them are bad ones, and we're going to stop the bad ones insofar as it affects the rest of us. So um doesn't seem to get it. You'll recall several months ago there was that um, uh, that ruckus over the, uh, the female Muslim members of Hizbut Tahrir, was it? Yeah. Who, who made a video where they were talking about uh, alleged um, husband violence against women, against their wives... And they were making light of it by yes. tapping each other on the yes, hand with a yes. little stick. little chopstick, yes. Now, the same argument, you know, if, if what he says holds, the same argument could be made by Muslim men that that's part of their fundamental religious belief. Correct. They're no longer they a Muslim man if physically they physically discipline their wives in whatever yes. manner they see fit yes. according to their, their religious uh, texts. 
It's the same. But look, the other point I wanted to make was uh, he was speaking as if Catholic law has never changed, that it's Mm. been set in concrete, so to speak, for a long time. Now, I have a a very dear friend who is a lapsed Catholic, a very lapsed Catholic, and he told me that um, this idea of the ascension of Mary to heaven Mm. is historically not that old. Mm. He said it was uh, it was made up by one of the popes. Uh, he I forget what year it was, but it's it's relatively not that long ago that the pope just one day decided, you know, whatever happened to Mary after she died? What happened to Mary? Where's where's she buried? Oh no, she was lifted up physically and bodily lifted up to heaven. Now this was just made up by a pope, mm. so it just sh- goes to show you. Catholic law does change and Catholic uh, theology, Catholic ideas do change and can change. Mm. So why, why can't they be changed to say that children uh, get priority over this uh, so-called seal of the confession? Yes. I mean, it used to be you know, part of your right as a Catholic was to pay money to a priest and that would then help you know, your relatives in heaven um, or in limbo, wherever they were, move on to heaven quicker, um, which is what Martin Luther objected to. So, you know, that was part of being a practicing Catholic at one point, but yes. it's disappeared because it was a bad idea. Yeah. Or, you know, well, it was one of the worst ideas they had and then disappeared. Yeah, it's so. a pretty weak defense, isn't it? That yeah, he makes. but, you know, this is from a very, very uh, learned uh, and respected lawyer. So, um he, I've got a link to an article from him um, which is titled Besieged Catholic Church is Wounded but Will Not Fall. It made me think, um, did you watch the fight the other day, Paul? I saw just the highlights of right. it on the news. Yes, so this was um, Mayweather and McGregor. And, uh, you know, um, Mayweather being a trained technical boxer and... McGregor being the slugger, and I think we should think of the Catholic Church as Mayweather, and the secular movement and the rest, you know, as as the McGregors. So right at this moment, we're just swinging punches, you know, as hard as we can. Mm. The Catholic Church is just ducking, weaving, dodging, waiting for the bell to ring, go back in the corner, come back out again, duck and weave. They've got all the time in the world. Yep. Like, this isn't a 15-round fight as far as they're no. concerned. This is like a 3,000-round fight. And, and they're in this for the long haul. And they will just, they will just duck and weave and, and put their gloves up and yeah. take some blows. And when the dust settles and we're completely exhausted and on our knees panting, then they'll just uh, wander around the ring doing whatever they want to again. In reality, they have a lot more resources than we do. Yeah, yeah. And they can go the distance. Yeah. It's it's an endurance uh, event, this one, Mm. dear listener. It's it's not over in a matter of six or 12 months. We have to be the McGregor that lands the lucky punch. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. What could be our lucky punch? Well, perhaps if we could just rig the um, the judges somehow. You know, that's that's what we need to do. Is somehow. Some people might have thought that the uh, the, the, the scandal around 
child sexual abuse would have been the lucky punch that landed on the Catholic Church, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it hasn't brought them down. No, and you know, the thing is that the judges in this fight who are the politicians in our little metaphor. They're all, you know, they've got, they're under Catholic influence anyway. So, got to be in this for the long haul. We can't, um, yeah. So, um, he uh, and he's made an attack already. This guy on the Royal Commission, saying that it hasn't been well run and that it's basically a witch hunt against Catholics. Is what he's saying. Ironic that he uses the word witch hunt because yeah. it was the Catholic Church that used to hunt witches and other uh, religious organisations. Witch hunt might have been my words. Uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but, one that is often wheeled out, isn't but, it? Yeah, but he, he actually, there is a good point in that, in that you cannot just take what Royal Commissions say as being gospel. Um, you know, I got, a friend of mine said the other day, do you realise how many religious references you make in your we podcast? We all do it. You're always saying, oh, for, God, for God's sake, and, you know, and, and you're making these religious... Yes, I'm aware I am, but yeah. it's all part of the irony and the fun of the game. So uh, hence the use of the word gospel. One that I've noticed recently, a lot of people say, I feel really blessed. Right. <laughs> Stop me if I say that one. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, but... Uh, oh, gee, a while ago now, we in this on this podcast criticised a guy called Dyson Hayden who was heading up a royal commission. Um, and at one point they were looking into... Um, oh, who was our female prime minister? I want to know the names. Just Julia to, Gillard. Yes. That one. And You've he forgotten critis- her name? Yes. Just, it was, you know... He, he criticised her for being too well prepared um, as part of... So, you know, royal commissions aren't necessarily perfect. And, yes, uh, we shouldn't necessarily take everything they say or recommend as being being correct. Because, yeah, they're just lawyers as well, Well, ultimately. So I'm with you on that point, um, Greg Craven. But having said that, I'm not with you on... Uh, the other points you make, and one of which which he talks about is he compares that, he says, if priests have to disclose what goes on in the confessional, then the same should apply to journalists, uh, medical people, and lawyers. How are they equivalent? Well, they have secrets that they don't reveal. and That's, that's where he's saying that they're equivalent. Ooh, that's mm. a bit dicey, isn't it? We know mm. why journalists are protected. Mm. It's because if they weren't, there there would be no journalism to speak of. Well, my understanding is that journalists um, volunteer to keep their sources secret. But if they are put to the sword by court, um, if they refuse to name their sources they can be held in contempt and tossed in jail. Like, mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, dear listener, but that was my understanding of, of journalists, that it was a, a voluntary code of ethics that they took on to protect their sources that don't have any specific legal protection. Yeah, that's, that, that's one that's worth uh, checking, isn't yeah. it? I'm not altogether sure on that either. Um, medical people, I would have thought, are under a privacy restriction that they cannot... 
um, they they can't release people's you know medical information without consent of the person. But aren't they required to report suspected child abuse? I I would have thought teachers are. I would have thought so. I would have thought medical professionals would be too. Yes. So, um, so I, I would have thought medical professionals would be. And you, all you medical professionals out there listening to the podcast, please um, mm. give us some feedback on this. Mm. And when it comes to lawyers, so if you, uh, as a lawyer, are told by your client that uh, the client says, well, look, I'm guilty, but I'm going to plead not guilty... In that situation, the lawyer has to stop acting for the accused. Is that true? Yes. So you cannot run a case... I didn't know that. ..that is when you know that it's not true. So mm. if your client says to you, um, yeah, I did it, but I still want to plead not guilty, you, you, you have to withdraw. So, um, uh, so... So should we um, take the, it... The, the, with... other, the other point about lawyers, just before I finish, is that... Nobody goes to a lawyer and tells them that they're guilty unless they're actually on the radar of the police. Like, in 99% of cases, you've been charged or you're about to be charged. So you're on the police radar. So when the, when the lawyer... The lawyer can't say in court, oh, my client told me the other day that he's guilty. Like, and, and the court would not expect you to. Like, so you're free, you know. Nobody can take a lawyer, put him in the witness box and say, you know that meeting you had with your client the other day, what did he say? And the lawyer can just say, I've got my claim privilege on the the T, and and it stops right there. Mm. But the point is that at that point, everybody, you know, the accused is on the police radar, and if they're a kiddie fiddler, they're not going to get away scot-free, you know, just another lawyer's appointed and and the whole rock show moves on. So there's significant differences with all of those compared to a priest. And sometimes... Quite often, in fact, lawyer, they change lawyers, don't they? The, often it's usually because of money, you know. They it? run out of money. They've yeah. got enough to get them so far and then it stops. That's, that's quite often why it changes. lose confidence in, in their yeah, representation. And, and, you know, and sometimes it might be that they've mm-hmm. said, oh, well, you know, I am guilty. And the lawyer says, stop right there. I can't help but wonder. Well, I can act for you if you're now going to plead guilty, but I can't act for you if you're going to plead not guilty. Mm-hmm. So, And, of course, they're not going to walk out and say, oh, um, I, I, I can't continue with this client because he just told me he did it. Yep. They can't say that, can they? Or would they? Or uh, could they? No, they just say, I, I withdraw. And, and that's the end of it? Yes. And but are they legally obliged to keep it to themselves then? Yes. Yes, you can't. So Correct. there is this... Correct. You, you can't. ...obligation to keep it in confidence. Correct. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But, you know, we as a society have decided that in order to operate a justice system, this is an appropriate law to have because we want people to have full and frank discussions with their lawyers Mm. so that we can ultimately get justice is more likely to happen in that situation. But we haven't done that with priests and we've decided as a society or we're going to that it's incredibly dangerous for you guys to keep these secrets and in fact it can be used against you so we're just not going to let you do it yeah yeah dear listener not too long ago you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the iron fist and velvet glove podcast was available to download did you silently think to yourself wait a new podcast I like listening to those guys if so then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast 
Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Greg Sheridan, prior to the podcast, um, there's a link to an article. It's an article that he ran in The Australian, and by God, it's a lengthy article. It, it goes mm. on and on and on and on. Mm. Essentially, it's a long and disconnected rant about how atheism is really a religion, how atheism was practised with disastrous results by Stalin and Pol Pot, about how without religion there's no way to determine what is moral. In contrast, Christianity and God have given us firm morality, uh, about how Christianity created everything that is good about Western society and how faith has inspired innumerable acts of kindness and charity. And I kid you not, it's one of the longest articles the Australians run in decades and Greg Sheridan's given a full free reign Mm. to just rant about the beauty of Christianity and the evil of atheism and you like Greg Sheridan at times. You see him all the at time times. in the drum or something. Is that Look, right? I, you know, I, as I said before we started recording, I often find him to be the most rational voice in a group of commentators <laughs> on programs like the drum. Um, but in this case, I did see the article. I read it once before the, um, the paywall came up and um, I could hardly believe that it was the same person because... On the one hand, he usually sounds very rational and very reasoned and analytical. And on this, on this particular point, he was delusional. You know, he was totally ahistorical, totally ignored all the other cultural influences. And, and let's face it, uh, you know, if you don't believe there's a God, then you don't believe that God did in fact influence our morality because it doesn't exist. So it had to be human ideas that shaped our morality in the first place anyway. Uh, and we have a, a rich European tradition of philosophy and humanism and all kinds of good things that shaped our morality. So he just attributes it all to a sky fairy. It's just mind-boggling. I'm, my, my mind's boggled that you thought he had anything... But, but he's conned you, 12th man. If you, if, you, if you think that he's ever said anything sensible... He's conned you because he talks about two things. He talks about religion quite often and, you know, he's the foreign affairs editor. Yeah, well, so, yeah, I have to say that I often find myself agreeing with him on foreign policy. Okay. See if you agree with him on when he, when he said this on foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, he said, uh, he's quoted as saying, George W. Bush was really a modern Winston Churchill that was uh, in the Australian, fifteenth of August, two thousand two. Really? Yeah, he said that. The Australian, fifteenth of August, two thousand two. Greg Sheridan. George W. Bush was really a modern Winston Churchill. He added later that the Blair dossier should transform the debate over the Iraqi threat. Either Tony Blair is a monstrous liar, or Saddam Hussein is. Take your pick. We only have those two options. Well, this is about um, weapons of mass destruction. And at the end of the day, yes, Tony Blair was a monstrous liar. Apparently. The implication 
from Craig Sheridan was that Tony Blair was not and that Saddam Hussein is. So wrong on that score again. Well, it's not as if we're taking the side of Saddam Hussein. No, but... He's, but Blair you know, was but, a liar. But this is an expert on foreign affairs saying that, yeah, you know, well. that, that the Blair dossier should transform the debate. Well, it was a blatant lie and he couldn't see it. Mm. Uh, secondly, uh, in the Australian on the 26th of April 2003, uh, Sheridan really let himself go. You, ready? you are sitting down. Okay. Quote, The eagle is soaring. The bald eagle of American power is aloft high above the humble earth and everything it sees is splendid. For as it soars and sweeps, it sees victory, power and opportunity. I don't think it's the same Greg Sheridan. It's Greg Sheridan all over. I think some body snatchers come down and... It's this... It's the same we guy. Greg Sheridan away and taken uh, possession and, of his body, and, and, and now there's and, a relatively rational and, and, creature inhabiting his brain. And finally, more than three months after the invasion, Sheridan still thought that weapons of mass destruction, that, that the doubts over that were ludicrous. He said that hawkish US official John Bolton had provided him, almost as an afterthought, with the sensational evidence that would prove the existence of Saddam's Weapons of mass destruction. And yet they never found them. Never came up. So this is the part that gets me, is that as a foreign editor of The Australian, he can get on the drum and places like that and and wax lyrical, no doubt, about current events in Syria or whatever. And he was so, so wrong Mm. on these issues. And he is so, so wrong on Christianity and, and atheism. Yeah. It's ludicrous, you can just get away with anything. You can be. It's the it's the well, era of Trump yeah. where you can just get away with anything, can't you? It's not as if he's competing with a lot of strong competition to get on the drum, is it? No. Finally, twelfth man, last article, which was one that I just found today and uh, really like it, is one titled "In Defence of the Bad White Working Class" mm. by Shannon Burns. And again, dear listener, this is from uh, this most recent episode of the Religion and Ethics Report. Really, really worth listening to this guy. So Shannon Burns had a pretty rough upbringing in a very white working class northwest suburb of Adelaide. I mean, that's a grim scenario just to think about. There's some pretty hard suburbs in Adelaide. Uh, You know... You know, there's the Yorkshireman, the Yorkshireman sort of um, uh, skit where you know we were so poor, we used to live in a toilet, and you know we were so poor. Well, you know this this guy says uh, poor whites were scorned by more than a few of the Chinese and Vietnamese immigrants that I came to know. Mm. Um, I was not the kind of friend that they wanted for their sons. The experience of being deemed undesirable and unworthy, even by new Australians, is a peculiarly lumpen trial. So that's how poor they were, that the immigrants looked down on them. Yeah. Um, And his parents were quite racist, and um, uh, they didn't grow up in a multicultural world, so they found it quite frightening, and he was ashamed of his parents. Um. But after he migrated into the middle-class lifestyle, he's become less judgmental of his parents. 
he said, you know, in the middle class, very little is imposed on me. The people of colour, whom I call friends, are all university educated and English rich. If they are registered as other, it is a very diluted form of otherness. He goes on, for precariously employed unskilled labourers, the prospect of competing against a recent migrant for a job is inevitable, while for white middle-class people is only a remote possibility. And our competitors are typically required to undergo extensive and onerous retraining, which puts them at a significant competitive disadvantage. In short, our empathy and values are largely untested and our livelihoods rarely, if ever, come under threat. It's just true. The people that you hear on television calling for increased migration would very often be the people who are not really threatened. And they're not affected. Um, in terms of their job prospects. In fact, Kenan Malik made that point in some of his books he, right. uh, when he discussed multi, you know, the rise of multiculturalism in the UK and other parts of Europe. He said the people who, you know, the political class who were making the decisions to increase migration from wherever it was coming from were not personally affected in their mm. daily lives by those decisions because they lived in the more affluent areas, yes. often in very secure housing areas, you know, well, mm. and possibly gated gated estates for some of them. Yes. Whereas the, the, the new arrival, the, 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 whether they're immigrants, whether they're refugees, would almost certainly be located in the poorer areas competing with the lumpen proletariat, you know. Yeah, yeah. He goes on in this article, middle-class progressives have no qualms about exercising their natural right to determine the moral values of our world, yet a fairer approach would surely entail sacrificing one's own comfort for a cause. Mm. The trickier and scarier consequences of enlightened policies should fall on those who champion them, yet they rarely do. Um, I confess that if a well-dressed... He's talking about his earlier days. I confess that if a well-dressed, university-educated, middle-class person of any gender or ethnicity so much as hinted at my white privilege um, in times when things were really tough for him, he said I'd have taken special pleasure in voting for their nightmare, as in a Trump-like character. Um also makes a point, whenever I allowed myself to feel like a victim, I fell into paralysis and deep poverty. Whenever I took pride in my capacity to work and endure, things got slightly better. Um, another thing he says here that's really interesting is, indeed, the willingness to um, expose your wounds is another sign of privilege. Those for whom injury has a use value will display their injuries those for whom woundedness is a survival risk won't. Um, those who cannot afford to see themselves as disadvantaged are instinctively repulsed by those who harp on about disadvantage. It is really easy for some people to go, oh, I'm an oppressed because of my gender or my race mm. or whatever, when in reality they're not oppressed at all and they're in a situation of middle-class comfort. Yeah. Um, people who really are potentially um, oppressed for those reasons actually have to keep silent about them if, yeah. if they're really... There's some truth to that. Yeah. Hmm. 
And not only that, but the middle class um, morality shapers mm. uh, can be very selective about whose side they take in terms of those who are disadvantaged, can't they? Mm. It goes on to talk about speech uh, and language. Language is another uh, site of class conflict. When I first came across someone who reacted to something that was said to him as though something had been done to him, I thought he was insane, but he wasn't. He was from a lower middle class family and was unfamiliar with our habits of speech. He'd never been beaten, so the words felt violent enough for him to react in a way that was, in our environment, laughable. Mm, These are interesting perspectives. It's very interesting, yeah. Mm. Um, Consider who determines the standards of so-called politically correct speech. Are they primarily negotiated across classes and social groups, or are they determined from above? If the latter is the case, then it would be senseless to deny that political correctness as it stands is a form and expression of elitism. When rules of expression are forced on people who have their own peculiar relationship to speech and who can reasonably be expected to struggle with the constraints, it's not a fair imposition. Mm. Um, and there's a lot more in there. I've just given the highlights of an interesting perspective of class, which we don't talk about enough. Yeah. People talking about race and gender and yeah. ethnicity, but at the end of the day, it should be about are people suffering a disadvantage mm. of some sort, a, a disadvantage of opportunity mm. that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Which is and, class conflict, basically, um, or class class war, as some people put it. Not necessarily yeah. war, but class disadvantage. Yeah. And I've heard, I've read or heard commentators say that, yeah, all this um, uh, focusing on different cultural groups is um, dissipating the, the, the focus that should be placed on disadvantage, regardless of... Cultural, cultural ethnicity. This is where I get really angry with Yasmin Abdul-Majid mm. and the platform she had. She had to waste that opportunity on, on cultural appropriation mm. when, you know, her Somali brothers and sisters, what they really need was a proper weekend penalty rates, you know, lower housing costs, um, Good you know, education all, and training. Exactly. Um, and these are things that would benefit all Australians who yeah. are struggling. Yeah. So to focus on those specific issues when you could have spoke, you know, spoken yeah. about the more important things that would actually make a difference, not only to her ethnic group but to all ethnic yeah, groups, yeah. that's the real crime. And, and, and I've just got a couple of thoughts here. Greg Sheridan railed against this um, materialistic... Atheism, as right. if it, you know, it's sort of losing the the value of of human life. You know, the fact mm. that we're focusing on material considerations, whereas exactly what you say, you know, um, people like um, Abdel Majid, you know, wanting to defend people's uh, cultural rights, whereas their their cultural rights are keeping women in subjugation. You know, their cultural traditions, I should say. Mm. Whereas if she focused more on people getting a, a good secular education where they can understand the world they live in on a materialistic level, which is a real level, 
and improve their standard of living instead of wasting resources on useless customs, useless mm. traditions, mm. you know, that keep and them locked. dangerous traditions. Dangerous, and, that yeah. keep, keep them locked in social norms of mm. uh, less less civilised, can I use that word? Less civilised and, and mm. less developed and less progressive societies and cultures, you know. You can. Yeah. Yep. We're um, not afraid to say that all cultures do not equally... Uh, uh, facilitate the, um, the, the 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 development of human um, well-being. Yes, because uh, they don't. Not all cultures are equal. They're not all <laughs> equally uh, beneficial or or good for us, are they? Let me just find. I've got there's one other article where I'd highlighted something along those lines. Oh yes, um, uh, just this quote: uh, "All cultures are not equal, or at least." They are not equal in preparing people to be productive in an advanced economy. It's absolutely true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So if people are going to survive in our mm. modern Western liberal democracy, then certain cultures are yeah. be advantageous for that. And, and yet we're told like, that we, we have to treat all cultures as if they're equally good, which mm. is absurd. Mm. I mean, you may as well set up a, an Aztec community. Right. You know, and insist on your religious freedom to uh, execute people because if you don't, you know, to, to rip out their hearts because if you don't, the sun won't come up, come up tomorrow morning. And if you mm. believe it, yes. then according to Julian, Julian Triggs, that should be enough. Yes, yes. That's right. At some point, religions cross the line to an unacceptable level. Yeah. And you don't have to go all the way to pulling people's hearts out before you no, cross that line. Like no, it, it also fact, happens when you you hear secrets about kids being, you know, abused, and you refuse to say anything. That's yeah. another. That's, you know, the line is before that. So yeah. yeah. Or you, you you want to kill homosexuals or mm. beat your wife or whatever it is. Mm. Surely there's there's a line that's far short of ripping people's hearts out that we can object to, and yes. and you know, without being labelled bigots or whatever that we can say, no, no, that's not a reasonable standard to accept in our modern, you know, secular society where we promote well-being of everybody. Mm. Mm. Right, 12th man, we've got through them all. We're way over time, but hey, I'm, I'm taking a more liberal view on time. So on it's you. a podcast, eh? Hey? Good on your fist. The other, the other thing... Uh, you know, I was, I was listening to a podcast the other day with my wife and it was a new one that she had found and it was an American one. And at the beginning of the podcast, they just waffled on about all sorts of stuff before getting into the meat of what they were actually talking about. And, you know, they're like four or five minutes into the podcast and it was waffle, waffle, waffle. And I was just just pulling my hair out and going, oh, Typical Americans just talking about themselves rather than the issues. And, and then we put on another podcast, which was a favourite of mine and another Australian one. And for the first time ever, these guys actually waffled for the first three minutes as well before getting into anything. So, dear listener, I'm going to change the introduction, which you'll notice from this episode onwards. So that um, I'm just going to, you know, it'll be something like, hello, I've got Paul with me. Paul! And bang, we'll go straight into it without, you know, your time's valuable, I recognise it, and we'll, we'll cut down on the waffle yeah, even waffle. more. So, all right. Are thank you waffling now, Trevor? Well, I, 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 I am. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
But if I only do it the once, I can get away with it. Very good, dear listener. Thank you once again. Thanks to our patrons, all those people working on the Secular Index. Send them through to me. Just an email, name, some details, some links, some ideas, and we'll grow that. And um, we will be back next week. See you then. See ya. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.